It's election eve, and we have the Democratic tradition continuing with the candidate coming to Cleveland in the final move of the campaign. It's something that goes back a long ways. We're going to talk about that on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with a wary and weary set of people waiting for tomorrow night because it's going to be a long week. Chris Ranowski, Laura Johnston, Jen Cahoon, I hope you had a restful weekend. <laughs> I did. Ready to go. Well, Wait till you go. listen to us on Wednesday. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and Thursday and Friday, you know, but you did get the hour of sleep back from uh, the time change. So I'm hoping. And it totally all... screwed up my sleep schedule. <laughs> yeah, right. Nothing better than it getting dark at 3 p.m. Like, <laughs> okay, everybody listening, do you notice the difference in their tone from Friday <laughs> to Monday? <laughs> Let's begin. Is Joe Biden keeping the tradition alive of Democratic presidential candidates closing out their campaigns with a last minute stop in Cleveland? Jane Coon, I think I've traced this back to 2004. I just don't know if Gore did it. Oh, <laughs> you expected me to research all the history Absolutely. of this, Oh, well. Kerry did it. I know that. So. Yeah. And Obama, I think, did it. Kerry did no. it. Obama did it. Clinton did it. I just. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't find if um, if it went beyond that. But 2004, that's a long tradition. Yeah, so it what's, sure is. It what's sure the is. Biden plan, although I guess it's partly secret. Yeah, he's he's going to swing through Cleveland uh, midday to make a closing argument. We'll we'll see, you know, how he wraps that up. But it's not, the whole thing is a sign that, you know, Ohio is still competitive, believe it or not. And that's what the polls have been showing anyway. I mean, we just we just got another one this morning from Morning Consult. They do that uh tracking poll that they've been doing all along and it's been remarkably, you know, similar. Uh so this morning that one showed Trump up by two points, forty nine to forty seven. And then yesterday we got a different one from Emerson College that showed Biden up by one point, forty nine to forty eight. I don't think we've had any polls recently that have been outside the margin of error. So, you know, Trump did win by eight points the last time. It really, unless the polling is even more screwed up than we think, it's probably going to be a lot, lot closer. So this is the first time Biden's been here since uh, the day after that Cleveland debate, the first debate when he took the train tour through Ohio and Pennsylvania. And then, as you know, Senator Kamala Harris, his running mate, was here on October 24th, you know, trying to get out the vote. So it looks to me that this is a, a big sign that the campaign's trying to boost the turnout in Cuyahoga County, especially because, as we've discussed before, if he wants to win Ohio, he really has to run up the margins in the large urban centers like Cuyahoga County. So I guess in that sense, it's not surprising. I, I'm I'm not surprised because I never bought that we weren't going to be a bellwether. There's a, There's been this prediction in several election cycles in the presidential election year. Ohio doesn't go the way it sometimes or regularly goes in the statewide elections. We're not going to get to this question later in the podcast, so let me bring it up here. Is Ohio in any danger of losing its its longstanding place as the bellwether state? No state has voted for the winner with a longer streak than Ohio, right? Right. Now, yes, no state is even close to Ohio in this regard. And thanks to Rich Exner, we know that Ohio has voted with the national winner in the 
presidential elections 14 straight times. That started with the 1964 election of Lyndon Johnson over Barry Goldwater. Florida is like a distant second. They picked the winner in each of the last six presidential elections, and Iowa has done so in four straight elections. But you're asking me, could it happen? Yes. I think with the closeness of this race and just the whole uncertainty about this election, yes, it's quite possible. And I think the most likely scenario for it to happen would be Trump winning Ohio, which there's a good chance of, but losing the presidency. It could happen if Biden wins Ohio, but loses the presidency. I think that scenario's more unlikely. Well, and then we could end up going with the winner. We'll have to see come Wednesday we could, morning we or could. three weeks from now, depending on when it they could finish. Could be Trump, Trump, Biden, Biden. Yeah. So. Okay, you're listening this week in the CLE. Did Mike DeWine announce any formal action to slow the coronavirus in his letter to Ohioans Sunday, or was it more of the same with just pleading with people to wear masks and do the right thing? Laura Johnston, it's getting a little tiresome the number of times Mike DeWine says, we're all in this together, buck it up, but he's not doing anything actually to slow the flow, right? No, he's not doing anything. And he has said this is, you know, we all need to come together and ask people to wear their masks and to not gather and go to, you know, funerals and weddings and football game watch parties. But this is a particular tactic he took because of Election Day. It was actually at a similar theme to your column for readers on Saturday and that regardless of Ohioans' political leanings, we need to find common ground. So here's a quote from what he said in his open letter. He said, quote, as we confront this new enemy, time is not on our side. We must focus. We must rally together. And in two days when this election is over, we must, as Ohioans, immediately pull together to fight it. I mean, it does come a little off, a little disingenuous, though, because we have been trying to fight this since March. And at the beginning, we were all pulling together, but it's become increasingly partisan over the last couple of months to the point where you have Republicans who are trying to undo what he has done um, and, and you don't have DeWine taking any any tough stance anymore to close businesses or anything like that. So I don't know what he's really trying to, I mean, maybe he's right. trying to exhort his Republican colleagues to, to uh, follow the rules. I know Chris Warnaski is going to want to weigh in here, but I do want to point out the difference between now and March was that Mike DeWine showed bold leadership identified the areas where this virus could spread, closed them down, locked up things to stop it, and was very successful. We we very much curbed the surge. Now he's peddling that, hey, this is this is moving in family gatherings. This is moving in bars. It's not happening in businesses and schools. And, you know, I'm throwing the flag because he has no data. I, unbelievably, his own health department has not moved until the last week to try and find out how people actually got the damn thing. So how can you possibly say it's not being spread in businesses? He does not know that. And he keeps saying it. So Chris Ranowski, you had something you wanted to say earlier, I believe, about how it's members of his own party that are the ones that are having the trouble here, not the Democrats. When he no. calls people to come together, it is disingenuous, as Laura said. What's also really fascinating, and I'll get to the point that I made earlier, but what's fascinating is that yesterday also saw that New Yorker profile of, of former Ohio health director Amy Acton come out 
And what's interesting is she makes the same sort of argument that DeWine makes, but in a much better way. And and when you point out the fact that 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 we were doing much better in March, it's most it's it's in part because of Amy Acton. And I think it's you know, nobody has come out and explicit, explicitly said it, but there was a line in this process that we crossed where her voice stopped being the one that the government was listening to that ideally, you know, we, we could have stayed shut down. We could have, you know, done all of these things or we could be doing it now. And we're just not for whatever reason, maybe he's afraid of being primaried by somebody in his own party, but the tone of his letter, what, what was, what sort of stuck with me in this letter is that he, he's talking about reconciliation among people with political differences. And really, I don't, I know a lot of Republicans and most Democrats who aren't behaving the way that people in Mike DeWine's party is. So I feel like the phone call is coming from inside your house, Mr. DeWine. <laughs> like, 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 honestly, like get your party together. Like this is, this is not an issue. This is not a both sides issue. Most of the Democrats I know have been adhering to social distancing, have been wearing masks, are not going out and attending rallies where they're against masks. They're not running political people off the roads in Texas. They're not doing the kind of things that, that well, let's, stay, let's stay on the coronavirus. That's, but that's not, what I'm saying is, is that like there, there is a definite difference in tone among the political parties right now. And, and you really can't say, I mean, the Republicans control this state. So how can you say, you know, that this is a, a both parties issue when in reality, there's no real middle to meet here. Like it's either you believe that the coronavirus is a threat to the public and you're doing what's right to, to help stop the spread or you don't and you're being irresponsible and putting other people at risk. We're eight months into this and you should know that by now. And if not, you're, you're being childish and you're being selfish yeah. and, and, and it's, it's, it's the, that letter. Okay. So, so it is, it is interesting that his letter comes out as the same on the same day as the Amy Acton profile, because you're exactly right. In the beginning, the public health officials were were coaching him on what's ahead. And he was very proud, if you remember back then, to how he was listening to the scientists to do the right thing. And, you know, he did a total shutdown back then because nobody knew what to do. Now, if you actually could say for certain with data that this is spreading in restaurants, you don't need to shut the whole state down. You could just shut down the restaurants. If it was spreading through HVAC, HVAC systems and offices, you could close them down until they put in the UV lights that are needed to kill it as it goes through their systems. He just doesn't have a clue as to why it's spreading. It's completely out of control now. The record on Friday dropped all of our jaws to the floor. It was at 3850 or something, 3848. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's, it's shocking how far we have expanded. We're having more in a day than we used to have in a week. And, and his answer is, Hey, I know we're politically divided. Let's come together. And Chris, you're right. It, 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 it's his party. That's the problem. It's the far right members of his party, the ones that want to get him arrested and, and locked up, but he's not really doing anything. And that's been a disappointment. We hear from a lot of people now who say he was great in that first month or two, and he's a huge disappointment now. And I think his favorability ratings are going to take a dive. Well, and I think, you know, we look back at the, at the spring and we think why we did all of that. We got it under control and now it's spreading like wildfire. Like we knew how to do it. 
and but you know what what was all that for? Remember when we were talking about like how Ohio was doing so much better than Michigan and we were really proud of our state and and now it's like we're we're on everybody's list for don't travel here. It's like well it it just seems so senseless and we're looking at a long winter where we have no you know there's not a lot of hope to look forward to. Well, Other than a vaccine, was, hopefully. He was hailed as a strong leader. And now it feels like we got a dearth of leadership on the issue in Ohio. And a lot of people are getting sick and a lot of people are going to die. It's this week in the CLE. Did First Energy give its CEO, Chuck Jones, any kind of golden parachute when it summarily fired him last week, just hours after a judge accepted guilty pleas in the bribery and racketeering case that is swirling around the utility? Chris Anaski, we didn't really ask the question when he was fired, but we all, I think, were wondering, was this one of those big golden parachute deals where he's going to get rich walking out the door? Not so much. Yeah, I'm stunned that this actually became public so quickly, but there was a filing by First Energy to the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission that basically said the board of directors is not really going to consider giving him any compensation or any other additional money above of what he's already been paid. So the company uh, fired uh, the CEO, Chuck Jones, and and some other folks for their role in this, the HB6 scandal. And in a statement, the company said an independent review committee of its board of directors found that Jones uh, and these other two men, quote, violated certain first energy policies and its code of conduct. Uh, the company didn't elaborate on that. And currently nobody in the company or the company itself has faced any criminal charges. But in the notice to the SEC, First Energy said the result of the firings, quote, each of the terminated executives forfeits or is otherwise ineligible to receive any grants, awards, or compensation regarding the company's incentive program. So, you know, I mean, it is a thing that happens a lot in in sort of executive corporate world that when people are asked to leave, they get they generally get, you know, severance or some kind of separation or there's some kind of contract where they get to keep stock and and all of this stuff, but but First Energy is not having it. First Energy says it won't pay any stock incentives to any of these guys. Well, and and the story showed that he's made seventy million in the last five years, so it's not like he's hurting. I, I was I do wonder is this something that the board is doing, showing strong, pounding on these guys to reinforce the stock price, or was there some sort of revelation they've received in their investigation that shows these people did seriously bad things and could be facing criminal charges? I mean, the feds have painted this as an enormous bribery and racketeering case, and First Energy's 60 million fueled it. You got to think if that's a crime, then those guys who made that decision would be criminals. So I would not be surprised if they're not on the list of targets for the investigation. But this was very abrupt. I mean, this came, boom, two, what, two, three hours after the first two people pleaded guilty, these three officials were out the door with nothing. Yeah, I have to imagine that there are, the company has been received subpoenas at this point and you know, that, that there is a target on, you know, first energy and executives, both former and current. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, you know, it's, it's things like this take time, but, but I imagine we're going to start sort of seeing the other shoe drop soon. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. 
What do the 10 Northeast Ohio lawmakers who voted for the corrupt HB6 first energy bailout say today about the bill? In hindsight, Jane Cahoon, I've got to tell you, I did not see this coming. The level of tone deafness by these people blew me away. (laughs) Democrat and Republican, they clearly are not talking to their constituents because they are oblivious to what people think about this. Yeah, these are the 10 Northeast Ohio lawmakers who who are actually up for re-election, too, on the, on the ballot tomorrow. But, you know, a few of them said they would actually vote for it again because they think <laughs> it's good policy. <laughs> a couple of them said, well, they, they weren't really sure. And um, I think maybe five of them said, no way, you know, but knowing what they know now. But then they were kind of all over the place. I mean... It, some of them are, you know, say the bill should be repealed, but they think there should be some kind of replacement. And some of them said, yes, they would consider still bailing out these nuclear plants if if Energy Harbor, the, the former first energy subsidiary that, that owns the plants, opened up its books or submitted to some sort of audit. Um, you know, a few of them supported the bill in the first place because they said they wanted to preserve jobs in their district like Republican Jamie Callender, for instance, he represents Lake County, you know, which is home to a lot of people who work at the Perry plant. And he was a primary sponsor of it. And uh, uh, Democrat uh, Tavia Golonsky is from Akron, which is the home of First Energy. But she, along with Democrats Joe Miller of Amherst and Terrence Upchurch of Cleveland and Republicans Tom Patton of Strongsville and Bill Romer of Richfield are sponsoring different bills that would repeal it. But, you know, there, there's more than one bill here. And I, as I said, I think the whole story that Jerry, Jeremy Pelzer put this together, I think it just illustrated sort of how all over the map they are and how it, it doesn't seem to offer a lot of hope that they're going to come to some kind of consensus on on what to do about this. And, law. and you know, the, the, the sad thing here is this could not be more black and white, right? They, they they now know that First Energy did sleazy things to get this passed. They also know that First Energy never provided any information to justify the $1.3 billion bailout of the nuclear plants or the need for the decoupling money. They never showed anything when they came to the state and said, give us money. Instead, they worked behind closed doors to get it done and then to fight the repeal effort. You would think if you were a legislator who got bamboozled by that whole process, you would be ashamed of yourself and would do everything possible to make it right. What I read into those comments was, you know, that they think, yeah, we should do this because we need to bail out the the nuclear plants. And they have no clue, not a single clue that the (laughs) nuclear plants need a dime because First Energy refused to open its books. I tell you, man, if I ever apply for a loan, I want that kind of deal. Just give me the money. I'm not going to show you anything (laughs) and 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 pour it on. I I just the the, I, I you know, they came across to me as stupid, like they haven't done the basic homework to give Jeremy an intelligent answer. What What is it? Five months later, they have not done the homework on this thing to be able to speak about it intelligently. Blew me away. I, yeah, I, and, they, and I think one or two of them even admitted, well, we didn't really, you know, have enough time to work on this the first time around or something, you know. Yeah, it's, but, uh, you know, Chris, may, maybe the courts are just going to decide it for them, right, with, with these lawsuits that are going on now. It's a, it's a shameful condition our government is in when the people we elect 
months after learning of the biggest scandal in the history of the state, still don't know what it's about and say the ridiculous things they did. It would be nice if the voters took over, but the gerrymandered districts probably will prevent that tomorrow. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The Melt Restaurant at Cedar and Taylor Roads in Cleveland Heights launched the move that turned the Lakewood Restaurant into a chain. So why is it closing after 10 years? Laura Johnson, we've talked on this podcast about any number of businesses that have closed down because of COVID-19. This one is pretty well known. What's the story? Yeah, it's just that the pandemic has really cut into their business and their lease is up. So they said they've had 10 great years in Cleveland Heights, but with the lease expiring and the uncertainty and challenges of the pandemic, they're making this difficult decision to permanently close. This doesn't necessarily mean the whole chain is in trouble. They have nine other restaurants. They're even at Cedar Point and Progressive Field. And those are apparently doing, at least going forward, but uh, this is kind of sad. I, I remember how excited I was when Melt moved in. I lived just down the street at the time. And it was like, wow, this is really cool. Because at that point, it was just the Lakewood res- uh, restaurant. And it was nice to have an east side location. But um, yeah, coronavirus. I was stunned that it had been there for 10 years. I felt like it opened yesterday. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, another one going down. They didn't have a patio which is probably why they couldn't get it started again. Their other locations, I think, mostly have patios. And patios, as we've reported, is what kept these things going, but also it could spell some doom as the winter comes. Can I just say something? Um, Chris Ranowski. So Banter also, I don't know if anybody here is eating at Banter. It's a really great poutine restaurant that opened in Gordon Square a couple years ago. They shut down their Gordon Square location. They still have a carryout stall at the Van Aken. And the last time I ate it at Banter, I was talking with them about it. And they basically said, like, our business is fine. Like, like all of, like they're apparently the Van Aken location is doing very well because it's, it's sort of geared toward carryout. And what they said was, and, and this is probably the same sort of logic that the owner of Melt used is that, you know, our lease is up. I don't really want to take the the risk of of the unknown of the virus and what the winter will hold. So I think what'll happen is is if if we come out of this at some point, they might likely reassess because Banter basically said like what we want to stay in Gordon Square, but this building doesn't make sense during this period of time. So I think a lot of businesses, even successful ones, are sort of looking at maybe hibernating a little bit through the winter. Um, to see what things look like on the other side of this. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're seeing a dark money campaign aimed at killing the proposed Cleveland schools tax increase, but now an apartment building owner in Cleveland has done his own thing to fight the tax. You know, this is this feels a little bit icky, Chris Ranowski, but in the end, it's it's part of the democratic process. It's part of the free speech of somebody that's trying to save some money. Right. This is sort of that like, hey, you got a nice sidewalk. It'd be a shame if something happened to it kind of thing. So some residents who who live at this building, uh, the guy by the name of Mike Peplowski owns uh, 60 North LLC and in a bunch of buildings in Cleveland's warehouse district. Um, he sent a letter to the tenants of one of his buildings trying to dissuade them from voting on this this property tax renewal uh, an increase by the city school district telling them basically that their rent is going to go up if they support this bill. And, and, and there's really nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, some people felt 
is, you know, we got, you know, somebody sent us his letter and they, they were obviously, you know, feeling a little perturbed by the fact that their landlord would do this. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you are a property owner and, and you do have the sort of right to explain this to your tenants that, Hey, I'm going to be passing whatever tax increases happen along to you, my tenants. So to give people an idea of, what is happening there. They want an additional five mills that would translate into hundreds of thousands of dollars in additional property taxes to, to, to people like Peplowski. But it's, you know, it, but he was saying that he had teachers who live in his building who were upset that he was doing this because their jobs and their well being kind of rely on stuff like these tax renewals and these increases. So I don't know. It was a fascinating story. And well, and, oh, go ahead. The- this tax has been renewed multiple times right. without any of this kind of fight. But as we know from years of covering this stuff, when a school district goes for an increase, it creates animosity. It creates difficulty for property owners like this guy. So I guess you could say this was expected because this is the first time Cleveland schools have sought to increase this tax since they began their transformation plan. Anyway, it was a great, it was an interesting read. I understand it's completely this guy's right to do it. If this tax fails, it doesn't just get rid of the increase. It gets rid of an existing part of the tax that will cause huge cuts to the Cleveland school districts in the middle of the coronavirus. So we'll have to see what happens tomorrow. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Has a second set of robocalls been used to try and depress the Democratic vote turnout in Northeast Ohio, this time in Shaker Heights? Jane Cahoon, I wanted to talk about this today because I'm worried that a whole bunch of other robocall campaigns are taking place today and we won't hear about them until it's too late to warn people. So I wanted to have a discussion about if you get weird robocalls today that threaten your your right to vote, don't believe them. What happened in Shaker Heights? I guess some residents got these scam phone calls telling them that polling locations would be closed on election day in their town. And we know and we want to tell people here that polls are open tomorrow, 6.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. all throughout the county. And people should not fall for this. Uh, And that's what government officials were, you know, trying to warn people. I don't know the extent of this. I mean, um, whether it was a, as extensive as those uh, guys who those the 8,000. Yeah. yeah, you know, who did the uh, calls in Cleveland and East Cleveland, but uh, they they did re- report them. And so, uh, you know, as you said, who knows what other kind of calls are going to go out there trying to either scare people or misinform people or just, uh, you know, use a trusted source of information and know that the polls are open tomorrow. The disinformation is there are people out there trying to stop the vote, which, you know, we've talked in the past. There's a long history of trying to disenfranchise black voters. But I don't remember campaigns in past elections that were specifically targeted at dissuading people from casting their ballot, from having their say. And it's really kind of despicable. Yeah. And there's all there are also attempts not to count legally cast ballots, too. So it's just... Yeah, and I hope with every one of those ballots that get rejected, the people whose vote was taken away gets notified that the list of names of people who are not given their say is known. Anyway, it's a public service. If you get a call that seems suspicious, it is, and you can certainly vote on Tuesday. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
That's going to do it. Tomorrow is election day, guys. We'll be back with a podcast in the morning. We won't know what's going on, but we'll talk about it anyway. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. We'll be back on election day.